thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, it's Boat. And after a bit of a hiatus, I'm back. The last 10 months or so has been a whirlwind for me personally, but I'm so thankful to Jello for his flexibility and understanding, to Ben for his friendship, and the rest of the Fighter Pilot podcast team for picking up the slack in my absence. To everyone that sent in well wishes and words of encouragement, I can't thank you enough for thinking of me. It made a difference and was much appreciated. As some unsolicited advice for those going through hard or difficult things, be kind to yourself, patient with others, and true to your values. Now, in my absence, friend of the show, Richard Knack Hartnick, took the time this past July to travel up to Idaho and interview a guest I had lined up previously to discuss the Vought F4U Corsair. As always, when recording outside the studio, the audio quality tends to change depending on the location and recording capabilities on site, so please excuse any audio variables you may hear during the interview. And as this is being released on November 23rd, 2022, we figured, why not pair an episode focused on the Corsair with a movie that comes out today and does the same, Devotion. Please stick around after Nack's interview for a discussion about the story behind the movie with someone intimately involved in the telling of it. So, without further ado, let's roll it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fighter Pilot Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the F4U Corsair. My name is Rick Hartnack, Nack to some of my squadron mates, and I was an RIO in the F4B Phantom and flew 220 combat missions during the Vietnam War. Today, our guest is uh, John French, a former captain in the Marine Corps and a fighter pilot with considerably more than 200 combat missions in Vietnam in the F-4B. John owns an F-4U Corsair and has flown it extensively, and we'll get into that aircraft in depth very shortly. But first, John, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Glad to be here, Rick. Uh, We're really happy to have you, and thanks so much. We're in John's uh, home in Sun Valley, and he's got models of his airplanes around the room, and he's really got some great experiences to share with us today. But John, it's a tradition at the Fighter Pilot Podcast to ask our guests to introduce themselves, tell us a little bit about where they grew up, where they went to school, how they got on the military track, and maybe their journey to become a fighter pilot. Well, to start, I grew up in suburban Connecticut, went to Harvard on Navy ROTC scholarship, took the Marine option halfway through college, got commissioned a second lieutenant in June 1966, and that was the summer that the Vietnam War was really heating up and the Marines were losing a lot of helicopters, Rick. So it was not a difficult thing to get a slot to flight school out of basic school. I had no prior flying experience, so qualifying to get jets was my challenge. I applied myself. I did well enough to get the jets, got my wings in 1968, and then was off to El Toro, California, to join a fleet squadron, VMFA 531, to learn to fly the F-4. So how many total hours did you end up getting in the Phantom during your first enlistment or first career? Not enough. At first, I was sent to Vietnam really half-trained. My first night refueling was over the Haiphong Harbor. (laughs) It was plug in or punch out. But in total, I think I wound up, Rick, with about 600 Phantom hours. How many combat missions did you fly? I think it was one or two shy of 300. You had a lot of missions, mostly close air support. Yeah, the Marine mission in Vietnam was close air support largely. 
We had some missions out of country, which meant the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos, and occasionally the Navy would invite us up to orbit over their ships at night when they got tired of doing that. Well, in addition to uh, the F-4 Phantom flying, you've flown a lot of different military aircraft. Tell our listeners just a little bit about the airplanes you've flown. We'll come back to them later in our episode, but just let them know what you've flown. Well, I started, I went to Harvard Business School after my six-year obligation in the Marines. was lucky enough to get a great job out in uh, California, developing commercial real estate in Silicon Valley, right as the tech boom was taking off. I started flying about that time. So I didn't have a large gap between military and civilian. I had to get qualified to fly single engine because the Phantom license, which transferred to the civilian world, was for two engines. So I had to get a license for single engine Cessnas. Then I graduated to Piper Seneca's Cessna 414s and ultimately for the last 10 years, King Airs, that was really the family aircraft that got back and forth between our home in California and our vacation home at the time in Sun Valley. Let's go through the military aircraft you've flown. I think your first military aircraft would have been the T-34B. Then what have you flown since? Well, talk about the civilian versions, Rick. My first Warbird was a T-28. We sold our company in 2001, had not disposable income. The kids were largely gone. I decided to devote myself to really getting into the Warbird communities. It's called a Warbird. Any airplane that's got a military history to it. So I was lucky enough to know a guy named Bill Anders, who was a Apollo 8 astronaut who had a surplus T-28 that he sold me. Oddly enough, it had been the first T-28 purchased from the military in 1985. And the owner then had fixed it up and actually won Best of Show in Oshkosh in 1989. But in the air shows I'd go to with the T-28 and the fly-ins we would have, I noticed these really cool jets. I had no idea what they were. I learned quickly that they were the L-39 Albatross built by the Czech Republic in Prague with a Russian engine. So I decided to buy one of those too. (laughs) Went back to Rockford, Illinois, chose the airframe and the engine, and over the next year and a half, had it put together by Pride Aircraft in Rockford. So that was my first two Warbirds, and that really got me through uh, probably 10 years of civilian flying. Then I um, was lucky enough to stumble across a Corsair, which would be maybe another story here, in 2014, and to fly that was a bit of a journey. Had to get a T6, get some T6 time, blah, blah, blah. And in the middle of all this, I moved to Sun Valley, Idaho in 2008. And then we moved all the warbirds from California to Driggs, Idaho, which is kind of a warbird center. And then had to have an airplane to get me back and forth from Sun Valley to Driggs. And that's where the backcountry Husky came in. So that's kind of a roundabout journey. But today I own five airplanes. Terrific. Well, In the spirit of full disclosure for our audience, I should tell our listeners that you and I were both in VMFA 115 in Chulai, Vietnam, for a year together, and we were both instructors after that at VMFA T-101, a squadron that still exists. We transitioned uh, new and returning pilots to the F-4 at the Yuma Squadron. We weren't paired up as a crew in Vietnam, but I checked my logbook and found we flew uh, eight combat missions together, including three of them during the... uh, Cambodian incursion in 1970, but I have to admit, <laughs> I don't remember the details yeah. of any of those missions. Well, I guess I didn't scare you too bad. Did yeah, you? I did. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Uh, so you and I have known each other for oh, about 53 years, I guess. And today we both serve on the board of the National Museum of the Marine Corps. That's the uh, foundation that supports that. 
So after completing your initial obligation in the Marine Corps, you told us that you went on to a successful business career. That kind of brings us to the subject of today's show, the venerable, dare I say, legendary F4U Corsair. You told us how you acquired your Corsair several years ago. Tell us about how you found it and what its history was prior to your owning it. Well, I was lucky enough in Driggs one day, over a couple of visits to Driggs, got to know a guy who uh, claimed he had put together a Corsair in the 90s from just a bunch of parts he'd found and bought. This was a very distinguished pilot who had 44 type ratings. He flew B-17s, Corsairs, Mustangs. So he knew the Warbird world a lot better than I did. And he made a claim one day over the Driggs that he could find me a Corsair. And I went, yeah, yeah, my life's dream is to own and fly a Corsair. If you could do that, Ray, I'd be indebted forever. So I went away thinking this would never happen. Well, lo and behold, a week later, this guy lived in Montana and was basically a hay farmer in Montana. <laughs> Called me, said, I found a Corsair, John. I was at a little air show in Hamilton, Montana, and a Corsair did a couple of passes and landed, and I asked the guy if he'd sell his airplane. He said, well, I'm not the owner, but I think the owner wants to sell it. So I made a call to the owner the next day, was in his office the day later after that, made a deal, and walked away with a Corsair. I had no idea how I was going to get it back to Driggs, no idea how to fly it. <laughs> and it was a lot of money on my life's dream had been realized, thanks to my good buddy who found it for me. You actually made models of the F4U when you were a kid, right? I did. And I have a picture in my hangar today of a watercolor painting I did as a seven-year-old. My godfather flew in Korea. So Corsair has been in my blood, so to speak, or maybe an unscratched itch for decades. Yeah. And here I was in 2014, lucky enough to stumble onto one and buy it. And just walking around it, taxing it was just a thrill of a lifetime. Well, I'm sitting here in your office looking at your models, and you have a original factory model from Chance Block right. of the Corsair sitting yeah. right on your desk. It's from the, my godfather. That's really cool. That's right. But, uh, that's definitely a life's dream. Yeah. Tell about the actual history of your airplane, when it was built or roughly when it was built, how it served, where it served, and all yeah. of that. Well, it was built by Chance Fought in 1951. I have the logbooks, by the way. So I know exactly where it had been. It had two carrier tours in the Met, I believe. The best of my knowledge did not fly in the Korean War, but it certainly had a share of carrier landings. And then 1956, I believe it, along with another 20 Corsairs, were given by the U.S. to Honduras, the Honduras Air Force. In 1978, 20 years later, a entrepreneur, warbird guy named Howard Pardue of Hollywood Wings went to Honduras and he wanted to buy these planes. And only 12 of them at that time were left, 12 or 13. And Honduras said, we're going to keep this one because it was a hero in our air war, but you can have the rest of them. Half of them flew out, half of them got crated out. But Pardue, the word was, gave him half a million dollars for a dozen Corsairs. Oh, my God. In 1978. That'll fund your retirement yeah, program. exactly. Oh he made quite a killing there. Well, they didn't appreciate their prices today immediately, but... There are a lot more money today, Rick, for sure. And once back in the States, it had two or three owners across the country. I think one back in Ohio, who then sold it to a guy named Ray Thompson in Kalispell, Montana. And Ray had a lot of money and restored it with a new engine, a CB-16 engine. And most importantly, a very authentic paint scheme. I have all those letters to the Navy trying to research exactly how the plane looked in 1954, 55. So the paint scheme today 
is an authentic Navy paint scheme, which my Marine friends, <laughs> being a Marine, kid me for an iconic Marine Corps airplane painted in Navy colors. Yeah. But I guess I've chosen authenticity over vanity. <laughs> <laughs> Let's now turn back the clock a bit and start our detailed discussion of the Corsair by looking briefly at its developmental history. Now, our staff research, we learned that the plane was developed by ChanceBot in response to a 1938 RFP for a single-engine fighter for the Navy Carrier Air Forces. They wanted maximum speed, 1,000-mile range, low stall speed, six 50-caliber machine guns, and put those three in each wing. They designed it around two things. One, I understand, was the engine, and the other was to get that big engine to have a big propeller. But why does it look the way it looks today or at the time of development? Well, I think there are two features, I think, set the Corsair apart. One is the gull wing, and the other is the very long nose. The gull wing was, I think, the result of a huge propeller. The propeller of the Corsair is 13 and a half feet in diameter. And what this meant was that the nose of the airplane and the wing root were particularly high off the ground. And that gave Vought a real challenge to make a landing gear that would work on a carrier because something that long would probably not be very sturdy. So Vought decided to bend the wing down to shorten the landing gear. And in fact, took 18 inches out of the length of the landing gear. And that's why the wing is bent down, simply to get that landing gear shorter and sturdier. Coincidentally, they stumbled onto something that they didn't realize. But when you bring a wing off a fuselage at exactly 90 degrees, as is the case with the bend down of the gull, it's aerodynamically perfect. There's no drag. And that's what gives the Corsair its speed advantage because it didn't have any drag at the wing route. In fact, the plane went so fast in the flight testing in the vertical dive world that Vought decided to call that off for fear of going supersonic. Amazing. Really amazing. The nose, I think, is the Corsair, its second distinctive look. You know, the Navy always preferred the radial engines, the Army Air Corps, the long inline V engines. But the long nose was a result of two banks of nine cylinders. So it's got 18 cylinders, followed by a two-stage supercharger, which in fact is larger than the engine block itself. Wow. And then behind the supercharger, you have a 234-gallon fuel tank. The Navy always preferred to have no fuel in the wings, again, unlike the Army Air Corps aircraft. So you've got engine, two banks of cylinders, supercharger, and fuel tank, resulting in a 16-foot distance from the cockpit to the propeller. And that's what gives it the long nose, sometimes referred to as the hose nose, <laughs> which makes the plane a challenge on takeoff and landings. So initially, there were some problems with this design. What were they? Well, you're quite right. The problems were so serious, in fact, that the Navy in 43, shortly after receiving it, gave it to the Marine Corps to be used on land basis because the Navy could not figure out a safe way to land the plane on the carriers. As we know, Pappy Boynton and all the Marines loved the Corsair. In fact, little known is that there were some Navy squadrons that were land-based as well, just so they could keep their finger in the Corsair pie. So the Marines loved it, and Chance Fought went to work trying to solve what I call the three structural problems. The first two being very serious. One was that the attempt to make the landing gear stronger with its gull wing, they made them very bouncy. So the early Corsairs would hit the carrier deck and bounce back in the air. And you can only imagine 
the consequences of the hook missing all the wires and the plane plowing into the planes in the front of the carrier deck. More importantly, the hook catching and the plane bouncing back in the air and then slamming back down on the deck. It was very difficult to control that plane initially. And Watt fixed this by just making the oleos much more hydraulically uh, bouncy. I like to say landing a Corsair today is like landing on marshmallows. It's very difficult to bounce a Corsair, but that was not the case in 1943. Secondly, the left wing tended to stall earlier than the right wing, which on a left turn of the carrier meant that some of the early pilots rolled on their backs unsuccessfully in the stall because they're very difficult to recover that load of the water. Vought got to work and they fixed this by simply building a stall fence in the right wing. And now the right wing stalled the same time as the left and they eliminated that problem. The third problem was, I think, niggling in comparison, which was that the cowl system with all these cylinders pounding away tended to spit oil on the canopy, making it difficult to see. I mean, more difficult than it already was. They solved this by rearranging the cowl system to be more on the sides and the bottom. And just, it still spits oil today, but not nearly as bad as it once did. So there are structural problems. You just addressed those. Right. What were the problems that they couldn't fix? Yeah. Well, there were two problems. One, the Navy loved the F-6F Hellcat. And they decided that because of parts simplicity, they'd like to have only one aircraft type on a carrier at a time. So the Corsair became the kind of the, the ugly cousin that never quite fit that. So they... Navy went with the Hellcats. The second problem, more difficult, was the landing. And Vought couldn't do anything about the nose. And it was the British who actually solved the problem for the States. We gave the Brits plenty of planes. And the Brits figured out, rather than a long straight-in landing, if the pilot made a tight left-hand turn and then rolled wings level, he could tight left-hand turn. He could keep the LSO at the back of the carrier in sight the whole time while wings level cut the engine, plop it down. And so with that, the Navy and Marine Corps tried it because they loved the airplane, land-based. And lo and behold, they made that work. Just in time, I think they joined the fleet in late 44, in time to uh, have a field day shooting down kamikazes late in the war. And in fact, this technique I call invented by the Brits is the carrier landing technique used today. Tight left-hand turn off a 600-foot, not 1,000-foot perch. One last little shout out to the Brits, Rick, is that the Brits also get credit for the angled deck, which in the 50s was a real problem not having it, bringing a jet aboard a straight deck carrier because the jets have a much longer spool up time from landing power to full power, and you can't get the plane back in the air. So if a jet missed the wires, it's going to go into the forward part of the ship. Wow. So again, thanks to the Brits, they solved that. Yeah. The Brits really were ahead of their time or the front edge of innovation in yeah, carriers. Really that's were. right. Well, so after getting past the growing pains, the aircraft became a real success, as you suggested. They built over 12,000 of them. It's the only plane the Navy uh, had that served in both World War II and Korea. The plane had an enviable 11 to 1 kill ratio in World War II and was widely feared by the Japanese. In Korea, it was used as ground attack role by the U.S. Navy and U.S. Marines off carriers and land bases. So which other countries adopted the Corsair? Well, you know, I should also point out, Rick, that it was the longest propeller fighter run in history from 40 to 53. So 13 years of production. Wow. And wow. with that, when we had our share of the Corsairs, the Brits, as we mentioned, loved it. They had several. The French came to like it really after World War II. 
and they put it to good use in their colonial wars in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. New Zealand, oddly enough, loved the Corsair. They had many, and there's still a couple that are flying there today. I'm told Argentina flew them until the late 60s. And oddly enough, El Salvador and Honduras had some. Honduras actually had 20. I mentioned earlier that the U.S. had given to them. So Honduras had a bunch. So it's kind of an interesting piece of history with what became known as the soccer war. Your plane probably participated in the soccer war because it was a Honduran airplane. Talk about the soccer war. And we had a couple of models of American fighters in that war. My Corsair did participate in that war. I have photographs of it and a history in that battle. What happened was, it's called the soccer war, but it was really a long festering dispute between the two countries, a border dispute. Apparently, at a soccer game between the two countries, all hell broke loose and precipitated, if you can believe it, a soccer loss to a four-day <laughs> air battle. What I can read, Honduras really came out the winner. They shot down many El Salvadorian airplanes, including a P-51 Mustang. And my Corsair was lucky enough, I don't think it shot down any planes, but it certainly participated. And there's all kinds of stories you can read about this war. It's a fellow named Chuck Lyford that I knew a little bit. And he went down and very stealthily flew for El Salvador. If you Google Chuck Lyford, you can hear about his exploits as a pilot and his attempts to get down and help El Salvador fend off the Honduras Corsair. So <laughs> it was short and brief, and I was in Vietnam when this happened, so I didn't hear about it then, but I certainly have read a lot about it since. We talked about the uh, long production run of this airplane, which, of course, led to a huge number of variants. Our listeners can go into Wikipedia and look at variant by variant, but if you could kind of, based on your knowledge, trace the developmental history a little bit of how the plane developed over all those years and the different roles it took and how they changed sure. the plane. The original model was the F4U-1 with the birdcage canopy, which was the model originally developed and given largely to the Marines and the islands in the South Pacific. To expand production, the government hired Goodyear to make the FG1-A, a variant of the Corsair, mostly non-carrier-based. Brewster got involved with the F3A Corsair, but they had such huge production problems that they really shut that down pretty early. The F4U-1A was the model we talked about earlier that solved the landing gear problems, the left-wing stall problems. It really was the model you think of as the World War II Corsair, right. the Dash 1A. I think one of those is hanging in the National Museum of the Marine Corps. That's right, yep. exactly. The Cs and Ds, they were added to increase the weaponry from 50 caliber to 20 millimeter and The D actually had a water injection system to boost the horsepower to 2,400 in the Pratt & Whitney 2800 engine. The F4U-4 came in very late in the war. It had slightly increased horsepower. It had a scoop beneath the nose for the new supercharger. Also, the first four-bladed prop was the Dash 4. Plenty of those around today. Many more Dash 4s than the earlier models. The Dash 5 that came in just after World War II, I'm told boosted the horsepower yet, had automatic blowers and the supercharger worked more automatically, had intercooler controls, cowflats, much more sort of modernized, as it were. Retractable tailwheel, I think it had heated gun bays, a heated pitot system for the first time, all metal wings, 
and I think set the all-time Corsair speed record of 470 miles an hour and had a great climb rate too. But you know, one thing the Dash 5 had that the pilots didn't like was electric trim, which if that failed, it was a little difficult. The Dash 5 then had two significant sort of ancillary enhancements, the Dash 5N, which added radar, which allowed the plane to fly at night, which was a lot of its missions in Korea were at night, and the Dash 5NL, which was the winterized version. And that's the one you have. And I have the NL. Does your airplane still have the radar pod on it? No, the previous owner took it off for some reason. I don't know why he did. There's photographs of it on, but I believe he took it off because it was a huge source of drag and no one used the radar. It didn't work. Do you still have a radar scope on the uh, no. panel? They took that took out. Took that out too. too. Yeah. No. But I have the F4U 5NL. So, from our previous conversations, I've gathered that getting checked out and approved <clears throat> to fly the Corsair as a civilian is really quite a journey. Could you tell our audience what it took for an experienced combat pilot, a real fighter pilot, to transition in and be able to fly? An F4U at air shows and things yeah. like that. Buying the Corsair, Rick, was the easy part. <laughs> but you have to realize that there are no two-stick Corsairs. There are two-stick Mustangs. There are obviously two-stick T6s. But you get in the Corsair for the first time, there are no training wheels. You better just suck it up and know what you're doing. I had the good fortune, as I mentioned, to have this friend named Ray Diekman, who found the plane for me and had 800 hours of Corsair time to train me. But it was all ground training. I mean, he gave me his Nighthawks manual, and we talked for hours about power settings and all the numbers and procedures and how you land it and the tricks of the trade. I mean, he had the phrase, for example, land on the backside of the mains, which means a two-point landing, not three. Two-point, but almost three was the perfection. So lots of ground talk. And I felt that after sufficient time that it was time to strap it on and, and get flying. And the day I flew my first solo, it was in Driggs, and I had about 20 of my best friends there, most of them aviators. And all I could say to myself was, John, boy, don't screw this up. You're going to get really embarrassed in front of all your friends. <laughs> now, for fighter pilots, looking bad is, oh, is uh, not good. almost worse than dying. Yeah. So the lead up to that solo, you went through a couple of different airplanes with instruction, right? Right. Well, the insurance company was a real obstacle. I had to get hull insurance. I paid enough for this airplane that I did not want to, you know, go naked on a crash. So I uh, had to get insurance and they said, and how much tailwheel time do you have, John? And I said, about 500 hours. And they said, and what horsepower engine is that? And I said, well, it's a Husky. It's got about 180 horsepower. And how much horsepower does the Corsair have? And I said, well, it's got 2,400. And there's a long pause. And they said, well, you have to get some bigger engine tail time. So go get 100 hours of T6 time. I thought that was absurd. I mean, hours is not a measure of capability. And to get 100 hours of T6 would take me too long. So I cast about and called a friend named Lee Lauderback, who owns a school in Florida called Stallion 51, which is known for training T6 and P51 pilots. It's the best school in the country. So I called Lee, told him my problem with the insurance, and he said, well, I'll call the insurance company, see what I can do. He was a real force in that community. And he called back and he said, John, if you come to Kissimmee and get a T6 rating and have me give you a P-51 Mustang rating, the insurance company says they'll give you the insurance. So it didn't happen all at once. I went down there a couple of times, got the T6 rating and the, uh, the Mustang rating, and they put you through the ringer. 
stalls, acrobatics, touch and goes all day long. How about compared to your primary training as a naval aviator? Was it even more demanding than I that? think it was as rigorous. As rigorous. And there was lots of repetition, lots of stall work, lots of acrobatics. My final test flight with Lauderback had two interesting things. One, he took the engine on top of a loop, so to land it. I had to find the remote field and do an engine out landing off the top of a loop engine out. And two, on a 6,000-foot runway, had to accelerate on takeoff, airborne, pull the power, land, and stop. Wow. wow. For real. Yeah, no kidding. So Jeez. it was a very rigorous training program that I highly recommend to anybody on this call that wants to get a T-6 or a P-51 rating. So those airplanes were demanding for students back in World War II. Was the kind of training you got there military style? You had to learn the systems of the airplanes as well? Exactly. In fact, my T-28 training, when Anders sold me the airplane, he said, you'll get your training one of two guys, Navy F-4 pilot. I was an Air Force F-100 pilot. And they had NATOPS manuals. They had the same procedures. Everything lots of systems, lots of repetition, lots of engine outwork. Very rigorous. So if you're going to fly a military airplane, military quality training, secret to success. And there are lots of people flying without that, Rick. Yeah. And those are the people you want to avoid. <laughs> exactly. So all this really ends up putting you in some pretty rare company. You've flown the F-4U, the F-4B, and the P-51. Those are three premier frontline fighters, very few people could make that claim. Who yeah. else has those kind of credentials? You know, I think it's a very short list. Yeah. I can think of only one pilot that I know, and that's Dale Snodgrass, who was a Navy pilot, a little younger than I, but not much. I had a lot of Corsair Mustang time, but Dale's the only guy I know. I know a few that have flown the Corsair and the Mustang, you know, civilian hands. But you add in the Phantom, the list of all three gets very short. That's amazing. I'm sure our audience wants to know, if you had to choose either the P-51 or the F-4U to take into combat, you know, assuming World War II, Korea kind of conditions, which one would you choose and, and why? Well, maybe, Rick, we should start that conversation with comparing the two airplanes. Sure, let's do it. Because that will maybe lead the audience to its own conclusion. But as I compare the Corsair to the Mustang, and I have much more Corsair time the Mustang time. Let's make that point. Yeah, that right. I'm hardly a Mustang expert, but the top speeds are about the same, 400 plus. Maybe the Corsair is a little faster by a few knots. Rate of climb, the Corsair wins that all day long. It's 4,800 feet a minute versus 32. The surface ceiling, about the same, 41,000. The range, you know, the Mustang came into being in the European theater to escort the bombers over Germany. So it had to have legs. And the range of the Mustang is better, 1,600 versus 1,000 for the Corsair. The turn radius and how you fly the planes in a fight, horizontal dogfight, I think is more nuanced. I'm not sure there's an answer here, but the people I talk to and have opined say the Mustang would probably be a little better horizontal dogfighter. But then again, my Corsair friends say that the flaps in the Corsair are like barn doors, and you get in a very slow turn, put those flaps down, that nose would come around very, very quickly. So I'm not sure the answer is obvious as to turning capability. The horsepower, the Corsair gets the nod, I think significantly, 2,400 versus 1,800. The cooling systems are altogether different. And this leads into the answer you want on the which you take into combat. You know, the Corsair is air-cooled. 
the big blunt radial nose is how it cools itself and with a cowl system. And I'm told that you can lose a cylinder. It never happened to me. But you can have an enemy round take out a cylinder or two and blow the cylinders through the cowling and fly 100 miles home. The Mustang is liquid-cooled. And this is really the Achilles heel of that airplane. And everybody who flies it knows it. If that cooling system goes out, the enemy fire, or for any other reason, you got about 30 seconds and the engine seizes. Jeez. And it's time to jump out, basically. Wow. Answer your question, you know, which would you take into combat? I also forgot something else to say. In the P-51 training, to illustrate a laminar flow wing, which I also should point out is different than the Corsair wing. The laminar flow wing was invented by North Americans specifically for the Mustang in the early 40s. And the advantage of laminar flow wing is it goes into the stall later, but it comes out later. So it's a safe airplane before the stall. And once you're in the stall, not so much. But a point to make is that in the training, you fly the plane vertically, full power to zero airspeed. That power's got to come off immediately at zero airspeed. If it doesn't, the torque roll will be a violent left-hand torque roll. The nose will fall through and have an immediate huge yaw to the left. At that point, you're going to spin. And the best pilots, I'm told, I have not done this, they will let you do this, will be a five or six turn recovery, nine to 10,000 feet. Anywhere below about 12,000 feet, you're going to buy it. Yeah. So that's what I call the frisky Mustang wing. You do not want to spin a Mustang. I wish to take into combat. I think clearly in an air-to-ground war, you know, Korea, or maybe some of the Marine missions in the South Pacific, I definitely prefer the Corsair. It carries more weapons, is a much more stable platform, and frankly can take a punch. In the air-to-air war, we said maybe the Mustang in a horizontal Messerschmitt war. But if you're flying over water, like the Navy did in the Pacific Ocean, I think I prefer a Corsair. Yeah. You've had an opportunity to fly your Corsair in formation with modern Navy jets. What's that like? Well, the first thing you know is these new young Navy pilots join up on you very fast. I was only concerned to keep my speed up to 3 or 350, and these kids will come in just like the Blue Angels. But you also know that they're going to fly on my wing. They want to control the space. <laughs> they want no part of me flying on their wing. But it was fun that a couple of times I did that. I have flown as a wingman on former military jets in civilian hands, like the MiG-17s and the Fury jets, TA-4s. And the Corsair, with all its power, keeps up very, very nicely. They don't have to slow down below a comfortable level to fly no, with you at all? not at all. We can cruise in the 300s without using full power. Wow. So take us into the cockpit of uh, your Corsair and share the experience of flying this really awesome warbird. It's a complex cockpit. It had to be a daunting workload, especially for new pilots. Well, I start by saying, Rick, that the Dash 5 that I have, the cockpit is, I call updated. I wouldn't call it modern. It's all steam gauges. There's no flat panels in the cockpit, but the switches and the things seem to be in the right places. For example, the magnetos on the left console, the star switches on the right, and the T-28, they're both on the right with the magneto to the right of the star switch. So to start a T-28, you are twisted ergonomically, uncomfortably to the right. Yeah. So the first thing you notice is this airplane, things seem to be in the right place. It's also got a floor. If you drop a pencil, you reach down and pick it up. You drop a pencil in the earlier models or a T-6, P-51, 
you find the pencil maybe someday when you're back <laughs> on the ground. Yeah. But there are some, I call it conveniences. For example, the P51, you crank it, cannot be closed. And the Corsair, it's a switch, electrically controlled hydraulics. Closes like the modern jets. Wow. It's got nifty wing fold, which is very cool to use and really entertains the crowd. Put the wings down. You want to make sure that the wings are locked. We can't imagine taking off with the wings not locked. That was always a checklist item before takeoff with the F-4. It needed yeah, to make darn sure that everything was down and locked. That the wing fold area in the Corsair had these little red things that come up out of the wings. You see red, you know it's not locked. So it's right. pretty difficult to miss that. It's got a very uh, important tailwheel lock, lock-unlock. You want it locked on takeoff and locked on landing. But you can't do the S-turns on taxi without the thing unlocked. So you got to get the tailwheel right. As I mentioned, the fuel is all in the nose or drop tanks. So the fuel management of the Corsair is very simple compared to the Mustang, which has got wing fuel, fuselage fuel, different tanks. you got to always worry about where the fuel is and where the right transfer lever is. I mentioned the trim earlier. The trim, I think, on the Dash 5 is something I don't worry about, but I, I'm always concerned because you can imagine with the huge speed ranges of the Corsair, say 100 to 400, and the power ranges from off to, you know, 56 inches of manifold pressure, there's huge trim changes. So if that electric trim were to fail, it would be a gigantic challenge to get that back on the ground. Now, you can isolate it by pulling circuit breakers and there's a manual override, but that gets more complicated. So the trim, I don't particularly like. Now, when I flew it cross-country, I succumbed, hardwired a mini iPad to get my four-flight weather and oh, yeah, know, navigation yeah, systems, yeah. but everything else is kind of steam gauges. So what about the flying characters? Is it fun to fly? Do you enjoy it? Oh, and the first time I had this in the air, I thought I'd gone to heaven. Once you get off the ground, it's really an easy plane to fly. It's very stable. A couple of things you notice immediately, it's got what they call boosted ailerons, which are basically ailerons on the ailerons, and it rolls like it's got hydraulic controls. It's an amazingly quick rolling aircraft. Its long nose gives you a great reference as you pull the nose through a steep turn or acrobatics. I would usually do a stall series on every flight, you know, dirty stalls, clean stalls, accelerated stalls. There's lots of stall warning. And I like the T6 Mustang, again, that had sometimes radical departures. It was very difficult to get the Corsair to do a radical departure in a stall recovery. Acrobatics are easy. They're fun to do. Lots of power. What you did not want to do is get the nose too low, too long. Otherwise, you're heading toward Mother Earth at a rapid rate of speed. Right. Easy to fly formation. So I said, lots of power and you can correct mistakes and keep up with most anybody. But I think the most fun I'd have in the airplane, maybe most fun, was what I call the cloud dancing. Yeah. On kind of an afternoon, cumulus cloud, beautiful puffy whites in the blue sky around the Tetons. I grew up on a cloud dance, I called it. We fly in and around the clouds, you go through the holes in the clouds, do loops up over the tops of the clouds. And there's nothing like cloud dancing to get a sense of speed, looking down and seeing your shadow on the cloud, you know, going 300 knots plus. It's most fun you can have with your clothes on, I guess. <laughs> That's really cool. So you've talked about the airframe's top speed and its uh, service ceiling, but when you're just flying around, what are the typical speeds that you'd be flying on, not in a landing pattern, but, you know, on cruise? You know, cruise is about 230 indicated, which doesn't seem much, but it's also much faster 
true airspeed and ground speed with a good wind. So just flying here to there, it'd be 230 to 250 indicated. How high have you taken your plane? Well, it doesn't have RVSM, so not above 29,000. And I didn't fly it a lot above 18. I don't like bothering ATC. Yeah, yeah. It's a fun plane to fly. You don't a fun that. plane. One of the first things you'll learn, the rate of climb is exceptional, even less than full power. And most of my, you know, fun flying is between 10 and 18,000 feet, where you know, I have class Bravo. And it's easy doing acrobatics or anything else where your mind's distracted for one second to bust class Bravo airspace at 18,000 feet. Wow. The plane just wants to go up at a rate of speed. It's amazing. The flying routine and the landing pattern is always interesting. We've uh, had a lot of different guests describing a lot of military airplanes and the landing pattern. Take us through your landing procedures for land-based operations. It's not dissimilar to the carrier, Rick, but to land the Corsair, I think, is the thing that I never got used to. I never relaxed in the landing pattern. It's a challenge. You recall I talked about the tight approach right. invented by the British. And that's important you get that figured out. So it's a tight downwind and a tight turn to final. But let me start at the beginning. It's very important to know what the winds are doing. Obviously, you land into the wind, but the crosswinds can be an issue. They don't the always get to choose to be able to fly Correct. or land. And there's right. usually a crosswind, especially in Drake's. So you better have a very good idea. Is it a right-left crosswind? But once in the pattern, I always do an overhead break, 1,000 feet AGL. And speed? 2 to 250. 2 to 3G turn in the brake. You know, bleed the airspeed down and keep a tight pattern. Put the landing gear down on the downwind. Once I was cleared number one to land. Interesting to note, the Corsair had no landing gear speed. Matter of fact, they used to use the landing gear for speed brakes <laughs> in World War II. On the downwind, I'm looking for about 140 knots at the 180, all trimmed up. And about the 180, I will milk in. 20 degrees of flaps. And this next part is the key part. You start the turn to the base and the final earlier and tighter than you're comfortable. Again, the Brits taught us that a long time ago to keep a very tight pattern. So at this point, I'll pull the power, not off, but way back, make an aggressive nose down turn toward the runway. As I'm heading toward the 90, I'll pump the brakes, add more trim, all trying to land with the proper trim put full flaps down, looking for a 120 at the 90. So at this point, you've still got a pretty good view yeah, of the field because you your nose isn't between you and the field. Correct. Right? You can still see the runway. You can still see if anybody's on the runway. You're looking as you roll on wings final, about wings level and final, about 100 knots. And here's where everything starts to disappear. As I train myself... To use my peripheral vision, I drive down the rural roads of Idaho with my hand, no cars, except me, yeah. hand up blocking the dotted white lines in the road, training my eyes to look at the white lines left and right. No kidding. You really did that? Yeah. Wow. I did that a lot. And every time I drive to my airport to fly my Husky and race, I practice this in preparation for the Corsair landing. But So once you roll wings level on final... The runway basically disappears straight ahead. A mistake to make is to look left or look over your shoulder right to try and see around the side of his big fat nose. That will not work. What you have to do is look forward and then soften that vision and then train the peripheral vision to pick up the white lines on the sides. And once that happens, you slow about 90 knots 
hoping to set the right flare to land, as I said earlier, in the backside of the mains. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. You just think of training a young man or, or woman in 1940s to fly that with maybe 200 hours in their pocket. I can't all, imagine all. that. Right? That's why they have so many accidents in training. I can't imagine that. But, you know, once you can feel the plane touch down, as I said, it's like landing on marshmallows. It's not likely to bounce unless you really screwed things up. The plane touches down, say one potato, two potato, and you begin to lower the tail wheel very gently to the runway. If it comes down too rapidly, it'll do a violent turn to the right because of the gyroscopic precession. When big propeller is a huge, huge gyroscope. Propeller, yeah. You have 26 so, feet of propeller out there. Right. Yeah. You hold the tail up a little bit, lower it ever so slightly, touch down, and here it's all rudder, rudder, rudder. You're constantly aware of any kind of left and right movement in the nose. You can see it because the nose is so long, and you try and keep it going straight down the runway. Once under control, you reach over without looking at it. The wheel unlocks, which is on the left console toward the rear, unlock the wheel and turn off the runway. And then lots of S-turns on taxi. So there's a lot of features of every aircraft that make it well-designed for its role. What were some of the best features of the plane for its role as a fighter bomber? And I know there's a story about Lindbergh actually yeah. helping the Marines increase its capability. Yeah. First, I think it's very stable because of the positive dihedral wings. It's easy to make a good bomb run and keep the pipper on the target. It's not nose dodging. It's got lots of power. So once you get rid of your bombs, your rockets, you can pull up and out of enemy fire very quickly. As I mentioned, it can take a punch. You can lose a cylinder. You can lose all kinds of stuff. You can take rounds through the wings because there's no fuel. And lastly, it carried a lot of bombs. It carried almost as much as a B-17, I'm told. Jeez. But Lindbergh... This is a story not widely known, but Lindbergh somehow got himself in the South Pacific and lived with the Marines for a while. And Marines being the Marines, they wanted to do more with less. And so they bootleg on extra bomb racks <laughs> to see how many bombs the plane could really carry. A chance fought would set the standards, and then the Marines would try and do more and more. And old Lindbergh would test fly these things. So he and was he, a combat test pilot. He was a combat guinea pig, and he'd come back and say, yep, good to go, or that's a bit much. So he really helped the Marines figure out how much they really could carry. (laughs) Roosevelt found out about this. Of course, Roosevelt Lindbergh didn't get along because of Lindbergh's anti-war stance in the 30s. So Lindbergh was given a plane ticket home. (laughs) 
We've talked about, I think, most of the pain points. The electric trim was an issue for, you know, was a potential safety issue, the nose on landing. Any other pain points in operating the aircraft you want to share? Well, my friend Ray Diekman gave me a book called Corsair Action and Accidents by a guy named Fred Blechman. And it traced one Navy squadron in the 50s. In that one year, they had 25 incidents and accidents. Not all of them fatal, of course. And it was aboard a carrier, so you're going to expect some mishap. But a lot of these things were ground mishaps. And you learn very quickly that you never relax. You start that engine, you're worried about hitting something. So lots of S-turns. I almost had a Cessna taxi in front of me once that I could have chewed into small pieces. So taxiing around is a handful, I think a pain point. Lots of S-turns. The takeoff we haven't talked about really. But again, as the tail comes off the ground on takeoff, the gyroscope propeller wants to turn the plane violently left, as does the torque, by the way, and it kind of left crosswind. So the takeoff uh, is a lot of right rudder. And if you don't get that right, of course, you can't see ahead of you. So you're just peripheral vision, white lines, 56 inches of manifold pressure, hoping to go straight and not off to the left. So I call that. How long does it take to actually get off the ground with 56 inches of? In, not long. And no armament. On not your long. A thousand feet. Not long. Oh, my God. I think it's in the air quickly. That's the other problem. It can get into the air quickly with all the power, but it's easy to pull the plane off before it wants to get airborne. Ooh. If you go off and you're not quite out of the stall range, you can easily, with all that power, flip on your back oh, with a big yeah. torque roll left. But with all the power, it can generally accelerate through that regime early. But that same left torque roll exists on landing. I mean, they didn't fix that entirely, but putting the stall ship on the right, right wing. Right. And if you come in too slow in a landing turn, you can easily roll, with, especially with a left turn to landing. And if you bounce, it's hard to bounce the Corsair. And I can't imagine bouncing it and getting back in the air. But the Mustangs do have this problem. They have springier landing gear. If you bounce two or three times and then panic and add power, pull the stick back, and a Mustang, you'll roll on your back. And there's Faster. certainly been incidences of there that, been. Uh, even at, at Oshkosh. Yeah, and I think even the Corsair would do that. So uh, one of the questions we ask our guests is, take yourself back, it's 1950, you're a young uh, naval aviator about to uh, go into uh, combat with the airplane. Any things you wish they had fixed to optimize the airplane from the pilot's perspective, or by that time, was it a Pretty doggone good airplane for its Yeah, I think it's a great airplane. I mean, it's always, you know, the weapons were ahead of the kids, I'm sure. They had more accidents in training than the, in combat. Yeah. But uh, it's a handful to fly. I think it's what they had to deal with because it was a great airplane in combat. Yeah. Where would people see the Corsair in the media? Light? I mean, you've told me that there's lots and lots of Corsair footage on YouTube. There was a TV show, The Black Sheep Squadron. Any other movies or TV shows uh, where people would have seen the aircraft? You know, the Baba Black Sheep series was made their plane really prominent. And were uh, those mostly about the same iteration or model? Yeah, uh, in the 70s. I think my airplane was part of that series, actually. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, wow. I find, Rick, that the best way to see the Corsair is on YouTube. And you can dial up actual training films. I watch those things endlessly. Wow. You learned the original Corsair didn't have start switches. They had rocket chargers that blew the engine to start. I mean, there's some really weird stuff you can find in all kinds of shows if you want to watch it of the carrier landing mishaps. It's quite something. But YouTube is 
where you find your Corsair movies. Well, we've got a new movie coming out called Devotion, which uh, tells the story of a Navy pilot in a uh, Battle of Honor action. He was flying, uh, Jesse Brown, the pilot that was killed in that operation, was flying Air for you, Corsair. What would you think of the chances for a crash landing like he did, uh, mm. a uh, plane of that size and <laughs> capability? That took a lot of guts. Yeah. I mean, a gear up landing in the outback of Korea to save a friend, that is Medal of Honor behavior. Yeah. He thought the whole time he was going to get court martialed for doing that, by the way. Yeah. For ruining a perfectly good airplane. But yeah. Turns out he didn't. Notable people that have flown the uh, F4U during their service? My favorite guy is Ted Williams. He was my baseball hero growing up. I never got to meet him, but I knew a guy who flew with Ted Williams in Corsairs in Korea. Wasn't there a baseball player, Jerry Coleman? Jerry Coleman, Who yeah. also flew yeah. Corsairs. He, he was the voice of the San Diego Padres was for he? years. Yeah. yeah. And, and Williams was from San Diego. I actually went to the same high school I did. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And then I think a couple of the astronauts flew a Corsair. Frank Borman, I think, flew a lot of Warbirds. I don't think Anders. Anders, he wanted to collect all his Army Air Corps stuff. He never had a Corsair. But Frank Borman did. Yeah, Frank Borman, I saw him in an air show at one point. So he was really enjoyed flying. It's hard to... Imagine a guy who's flown jet fighters, astronaut, and then yeah. gets his biggest thrill out of flying yeah. an older. Well, I'd like to kind of turn our conversation now back to some of your really varied flying experiences. Uh, you're in the unique position of having flown several generations of trainer aircraft. You've flown the most advanced trainer from World War II, the SNJ or AT-6. You flew its successors, the T-34B, the T-28. You flew the T-2B and T-2C, I think. Yep. And you got to fly the TF-9J and I think just the F-9J, right? That's right. Can you just make some observations for our audience about the difference in, importantly, the succession of challenge and the difficulty that developed as the airplanes evolved over the years? Yeah. I think oddly to start, Rick... When the Navy went from the T-6 to the T-28 in the early 50s, it actually made life easier for the pilot in the sense that no longer had a tailwheel. Oh, yeah. And tail draggers are infinitely more difficult planes to take off and land than tricycle gear. And the Navy designed the T-28 to get up off the ground with its tricycle gear to simulate the transition into the new generation of jets that were all tricycle gear. Tricycle gear, So yeah. in that sense, the T-28 was easier. It had more power, so it was easier to get out of difficulty and correct mistakes. It had 1,400 horsepower compared to 600 for the T-6. The T-28 was heavier, however. I learned in training that you don't want to get too low and too slow in the landing pattern, and that thing will sink like a sack of rocks. <laughs> so that's the pain point for the T-28 was it could have a big sink rate. But I think it simplified life. The uh, transition from the T-2 Buckeye to the TF-9, and I flew Buckeye at Meridian, Mississippi, my basic jet training, took that aboard a carrier, and that was pretty easy, I thought. It had two engines, very stable. That's uh, a C model. C right? model. Yeah. And the TF-9 in Kingsville, Texas, the last plane I flew in the training command, I think was more difficult to fly. Only in one engine. It seemed it was hugely underpowered. And I can recall the training said, do not get low and slow. Do not get low and slow aboard the carrier, especially or you're going to have a bad afternoon. But the most difficult challenge was learning how to go through the stall series. The swept wing of the Cougar jet infinitely changed the stall characteristics, made it much easier to stall 
at slow speeds. You do not want to happen. Yeah. I think the F-9 complicated things. The T-28 simplified things. Cockpit of the uh, Cougar compared to the cockpit of the F-4. <laughs> well, both of them are pretty primitive. <laughs> you know, the F-4 was not terribly ergonomic. I can remember the radio switches were at the right hand mid-console back. And so if you were flying, of course, had the REO in the back, like you, Rick, who could do all the radio channel switching. But if I had to change the radios, flying formation, it's left hand the stick, right hand the radio. So the Phantom was not particularly ergonomically perfect. The Cougar was the same. I mean, these designers did not think of you know, ergonomics at all. I don't really recall that much. I'm not flown a Cougar since 1968. Yeah, so I, right. My memory is not that vivid. Cockpit size of F4U versus F4B? Very similar. Very comfortable. Big cockpit. Big cockpit. Because yeah. it's a wide fuselage. And which brings me to the L39. Can I say a few things about that? Yeah, sure. The second Warbird I bought was the L39 Albatross. Contrary to popular belief, the Soviets built pretty good airplanes. Very solid aircraft. The avionics, they fall a bit short. And when I put mine together, I decided to update the avionics. Took all the Soviet stuff out put all the American modern technology and fuel computers and GPS, et cetera, and had to put 80 pounds of lead back in the nose to keep the weight balance right. There was that much weight came that out much of the weight. panel. But the airplane could take a punch. I mean, I have only had my 20 years of owning it, one problem in the air. So they put them together very well. I actually saw a gear up landing once and saw the plane fly three days later. Oh, amazing. It had great features like trailing link gear, anti-skid brakes, uh, had excellent redundancy, good ejection seat. The one piece I've never gotten used to is the wheel brakes around the stick. The Soviet copied the Brits technology and the Spitfires of basically bicycle brakes on the stick for their wheel brakes. And it's hard to get used to that. Yeah, when you use your toes. Always want the yeah. toes and yeah. always want to, you know, copy a clearance or something. It's not a good idea. You also had the neat experience of flying three different generations of frontline fighters. You've obviously flown the Corsair, which we've been talking about, then the F-9F Cougar, a leading frontline fighter and first jet fighter, uh, not first jet, but one of the first jets in uh, combat in the Korean War, and then, of course, the F-4B. As you look at that transition, observations on yeah. what that might have been like for Nuggets going into those airplanes and what it have been, been like flying as a more experienced pilot yeah. in the squadron. Well, the big difference you see in the F-4 Phantom, Rick, is the power. We had, as I remember, 34,000 pounds of thrust and afterburner, right. two engines. The Cougar had 7,200 pounds in one engine. And what did the Cougar weigh? 13,000 pounds. Wow. Now, the Phantom, you could hang some weapons on it, get up over 50. But nonetheless, the Phantom had power that the Cougar only dreamed of. And this think about the technology development from the Cougar was, say, early to mid-50s. The Phantom was late 50s, early 60s. So in less than 10 years, the engine technology had improved tremendously. And the second difference is payload. I mean, the Cougar was primitive with its guns and its bomb racks. And it, I don't even remember if it had missiles or not, but I don't think it had missiles. But no. the Phantom carried radar-guided Sparrow missiles, which is where you came in right. in the, right. the, the RAO teamwork here. And then it had heat-seeking sidewinders. Uh, it could carry twice the bombs of a Cougar jet. So in 10 short years, light years, better airplane. I always like to poke fun at the designers of the Phantom. Initial models that we flew, the F-4B, Rick, did not have internal guns. 
They can hang a gun under the belly. Right. And the subsequent models that the Air Force and the F4Js had with the Navy did have internal guns, I believe, the Js did. No, I don't think the Js they did, didn't. but the, the Air Force did. did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Air Force did that. But the original design for the Phantom was to be an interceptor for the Russian bombers. Right. Who needed a gun? Well, little did they realize that they'd fly the Phantom. They'd be flying and, against MiG-21s yeah, exactly. uh, in the air again. over uh, North Vietnam. Yeah. Right. And of course, the Phantom was a Mach 2 airplane, so all in 10 short years. I remember in our experience in Yuma when you're taking kids right out of the training command into the F-4. They flew their first couple hops with a pilot in the backseat. Probably the first one, maybe they were in the backseat. Then you guys took them for a few flights. And then before they had 10 hours in the F-4, guys like me were in the back. (laughs) Yeah. And you could tell very quickly who was keeping up with the airplane and who was behind the airplane. I think that it probably was the same even in the olden days with propellers. When a nugget is moving into a frontline fighter, they are stepping up in performance in a way that really challenges pilots. Indeed. Well, you're right, Rick, and there are no two-stick. I guess I did come across one two-stick Phantom once, but my first flight was no training wheels. It was one-stick Corsair, and off we went. But I should maybe say a few quick things. One-stick Phantom, yeah. Say a few things about the takeoff technique. Yeah. In the Phantom, you took off with the stick full back, afterburners, and, of course, when the nose came up, at takeoff speed, you push the stick forward. This was not the normal technique of taking an airplane. I'm pushing the stick forward to get the nose into the air. So that took some getting used to, too. Yeah, I bet. Well, I remember the F-4 in those early training flights with nothing hanging on it except wing tanks. With all that thrust, even in the hot weather in Yuma, it flew like a rocket ship. Yeah. I'll tell you one other quick story. I was a test pilot in the Vietnam squadron. I went to test flight one day. There was no fuel tanks, no bombs, and a light load of gas. And the takeoff in the Phantom was half flaps, which meant the takeoff roll was a little longer, but got your airborne a little safer. And that day, I forgot to put the flaps to half. I had a maintenance guy in the back seat giving him a joyride. We had 6,000 pounds of gas, which is basically nothing, and no weight, full power, no flaps. That nose came up about 50 feet after I had the power. I did a porpoise takeoff, oh, man. and this guy was just, he thought that was the funnest thing he'd ever seen. <laughs> well, John, this has really been great, and we appreciate your taking time to share your Corsair knowledge with us and your knowledge and experience with our audience. Before we let we, you go, we always ask, first, is there anything we've left out that you want to cover? I think I've said all I can say, Rick. No, no really, really, no. Really appreciate yeah. it. So now the call sign question. Your call sign when I flew with you as Zeus, how'd that come about? It was different then than it is now, right? No, it's Zeus today, Rick. The process. Oh, of the getting... process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, usually it's tagged on to you by somebody else. In my case, I got to Vietnam. I had some generic call sign like Snake or something. I don't really remember. I think it was Snake. And one day early in my tour in Vietnam, I got back from a mission and was shooting my mouth off about how well I'd done or something like that. <laughs> And I think in jest, the experienced Rio looked down his nose at me and said, well, if you're that good, you need a better call sign. We're going to call you Zeus, king of the gods. <laughs> and he said, you better live up to that. Okay, that, but and that's so, actually similar to the process today. You get yeah, a call sign from yeah, mistakes or uh, characteristics. Yeah, of the yeah like so that. that's stock, and here I am today with the same call sign. That's, that, neat. that's really cool. Anyway. Well, So, John, we both have shared the experience of being involved with the National Museum of the Marine Corps, but I know that you've been involved with 
organizations that assist veterans. And tell us a little bit about that. And then at the end of our show, we'll have the, in the show notes, we'll have the link to this organization. Yeah, thank you, Rick. When I moved to Sun Valley, Idaho, about 15 years ago, I really reached out to a group called Higher Ground, which is a group that helps injured veterans. And the way they help the veterans is using recreation as therapy. So I became a professional ski instructor to ski with injured veterans and using skiing as a way to get them off their couch, out of their dark apartments and their medications, and do some things that they couldn't think they could ever do. Some have skied before, some have not, and all come for a week and uh, go back a changed person because of the therapy. It's just powerful, powerful stuff. Recreation puts a smile on their face and it's just therapy that you can't understand, Rick, until you actually go through it. It's one of the best things I do. Four weeks a year, I will devote a week to skiing with injured veterans. Well, that's terrific. Just terrific. A life of giving back to the military. It's, right. Uh, something I know you follow. You've supported people with scholarships and everything else. So it's just yeah. great to be with someone who gives back like that. Well, it's a terrific group. And uh, HigherGroundUSA.org, if any of your listeners want to learn more. HigherGroundUSA.org. Thanks so much. Thanks for sharing uh, the opportunity to be here in your office with all this uh, fantastic aviation memorabilia. And thanks so much for sharing your Corsair time with us. You're quite welcome, Rick. It's been a pleasure. Welcome back to the studio. My thanks to Nack for taking the reins on the Corsair. I thought he did a great job with his first time behind the microphone. Now, I'm by no means an expert but this is not an easy thing to do, and he handled it extremely well. We also must thank Mr. John French for his time and the incredible amount of information he has in his head. But more than that, his ability to blend in the first-hand experience he's gained over time with the history of each of the aircraft he's flown was truly impressive. Listening to this was a wonderful way to learn about this aircraft, and it was really neat to hear them catch up and relive their past. I especially found it interesting the process it took for him to get qualified and fly the Corsair. I don't know. Maybe you should go check out this Stallion 51 operation. What do you think? Now, one thing we did want to make sure was covered was the acronym RVSM, which we heard during the discussion because I don't think it's been covered on the show before. It stands for Reduced Vertical Separation Minimum, and it's only found in the U.S. in Class A airspace, which is from Flight Level 180 to Flight Level 600. RVSM airspace is carved out of that from Flight Level 290 to Flight Level 410, and instead of the regular 2,000 feet of altitude separation between aircraft, they have... (laughs) You guessed it, reduce the vertical separation down to only 1,000 feet. Now, it's primarily used by airline aircraft, but anyone with all the required equipment on board may fly in it, assuming all those items are working as prescribed. The Corsair doesn't inherently come with those items, so it's stuck operating at the lower altitudes, which just aren't as efficient. But I guess that's part of the cost of flying an 80-year-old aircraft. Such is life. Now, there's a reason this episode is airing when it is. As listeners of this show are well aware, 2022 has been a pretty good year for aviation movies. We obviously covered Top Gun Maverick early this year with Top Gun Month, but in all the excitement, one movie that may have snuck under your radar is an adaptation of a book about an amazing true story called Devotion. Now, I read this book early this year, and I reached out to its author, Mr. Adam Makos, and he was gracious enough to sit down and do an interview about the book with me and his role in the upcoming movie by the same name. So, Adam, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Trevor. Yeah, this is a huge honor for me. I think you wrote an absolutely amazing book, and I can't wait for the listeners to see the movie, which the trailers have absolutely, I think, done wonders for the visualization of the words that you put on the page. But thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule, because 
This movie is really ramping up. It's obviously November 23rd when we're releasing this episode, but we're uh, recording this earlier in the month, and we've been trying to put this together for a few months at this point now as it is. But I did want to take a few minutes of your time to discuss the book and how you came to the realization that this is a story that you needed to tell. Now, having read the book, I know it's telling the inspirational story of the Navy's most famous aviator duo, and I pulled this all from your website, adammakos.com. But it's about Lieutenant Tom Hudner and Ensign Jesse Brown and the Marines that they fought to defend. But how did you find out about this story and what motivated you to write a book about it? Well, Trevor, it was actually a story that I was almost afraid to write, not because Tom Hudner, the hero, was in any way a daunting figure. I mean, he was the most gracious guy I'd ever met. It was because it was about the Korean War. And I had always studied World War II. My grandfather's got me interested in World War II when I was just a kid, but I knew nothing about the Korean War. Now, the story, I found it actually in 2007. I was just a young journalist at the time looking for a good story to write for a magazine. And I was at a veterans conference in Washington, D.C., and Tom Hudner had spoken. He was a Medal of Honor recipient. And I kind of bopped in the room and caught a little bit of his presentation. And I knew he had done something remarkable. I mean, crashing his airplane and trying to save a friend. I mean, I just knew there was something special. Definitely. But I had places to go, things to do. I was lucky because when it came time to go home from this event, there I was in the lobby, packing my bags, getting ready to go to the car. And Tom Hudner was sitting there across the way, reading his newspaper. I thought to myself, that's a Medal of Honor recipient from the Korean War, that war you don't know much about. But come on, he wears a Medal of Honor. And so it's kind of like uh, approaching a woman in a bar. You know, I had to kind of psych myself up and say, okay, come on, let's do this. Let's do this. You can do this. You're special. (laughs) And walked across the room and took a deep breath and said, Captain Hudner, I'd love to interview you someday if you'd allow me. And that's when he did something that changed my life. He reached into his pocket and he handed me his business card. And he said, why, sure, I'd be glad to. That's how it all began. If he had had a different reaction, if he had been a different person, I don't think uh, we'd be having this conversation right now. Wow. Serendipitous almost. Well, so one of the big reasons we're obviously talking about this fantastic book is the story that you were able to kind of piecemeal together after how long the process was it to write this book, would you say? I would say I spent a good decade on and off, on and off. And um, I say that because there was a big learning curve to this. All I'd ever seen about the Korean War was the show MASH. Yeah. Never really liked it anyway. It just seemed a little corny, you know, kind of that, that 70s thing about it. And sure. it didn't have that visceral thing that you expect when you want to learn about a war. I had seen Porkchop Hill with Gregory Peck. That was the last Korean War movie made by Hollywood. That was made in 1959. So there was a big learning curve because you just couldn't pop in a movie and get an overview of the war. There weren't a lot of books in popular culture about the Korean War. And so it took a lot of time to track down Tom's squadron mates to kind of gather these old Navy fighter pilots and then to just do this sort of self-education about the Forgotten War. That's amazing. Ten years of time dedicated to producing just one book. And it's by all means, it's an amazing book. But that shows a lot, I think, behind the scenes as to what it takes to come up with something like this. And, And you obviously wrote the book. But what part did you play in the development and the production of the film itself? I was very lucky. The producers of the movie were really cool. We kind of were a team from the ground up. 
would you like to hear about how this thing all came together? It's kind of kind of wild. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Glenn Powell is now a household name. He played Hangman in Top Gun Maverick. He'd actually come to me back, I want to say 2017, and he said, I want to play Captain Tom Hudner. My dad read the book. I read the book. My uncles read the book. We were all on a fishing trip, and we're all just talking about this book we're reading, and it was just serendipitous. And he said, I want to be Tom. I want to play him. I want to do this justice. You know, I've kind of worked with Hollywood before, and you never know how serious somebody is because they all say the same thing. Oh, we want to make a big movie of your book. Oh, it's going to be amazing. Oh, you're so talented. And it's kind of like you hear this over and over again, and you never know when it's real. And you never know when there's true meaning behind it. Well, in this case, I decided to test Glenn. I said, all right, well, if you really want to be Tom Hudner, would you actually like to meet Tom Hudner? Tom was 92 at the time. He had Parkinson's and it was taking over his body. And it was a terrible thing to watch. But Glenn said to me, when and where? And at that moment, okay, the lights are coming on. All right, there's a possibility with this guy. And so I said, how about we go Memorial Day weekend, which is next weekend? He said, all right, I'm there. So I flew in from Denver. He drove up from New York. He was taking a break from a Netflix movie he was shooting. And we went and we had waffles with Tom Hudner at his (laughs) kitchen table. Wow. And I got to watch Glenn interact with Tom. There was a part where we were going to go outside for a photo and Tom just wasn't moving so well those days. And, And I think I went for the door to open the door. And next thing I know, I look back and Glenn has his arm underneath Tom's and he's steadying him as he's walking to the door. That was a moment that was just seared in my mind. I thought, okay, this is kind of cool. And so that night, Glenn and I went out for dinner and I said, all right, you're the guy for the job. Tom likes you. I like you. I believe in you. How do we get this made? And he said, well, it just so happens that I've got some friends at a company called Black Label Media, Rachel and Molly Smith, they're uh, movie producers and their father was a Marine in Vietnam. And he wasn't just any Marine. He was a leader of a rifle company, Silver Star, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, very famous K-3-5, which was Fifth Marines. Their father happened to be Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx. Wow. So Fred, he had heard of this story before. He knew Tom Hudner. He had met him. He's very active in veterans' causes, very patriotic guy. This story spoke to him because a lot of the gunnery sergeants, when he was in Vietnam, They were telling stories from the Chosen Reservoir, the battle at the center of devotion. Mm -hmm. And they were telling about this war they had fought. So he grew up and he came of age on these stories of the Korean War, but he did it in Vietnam. When it came time to possibly make the first Korean War movie in 50, 60 years, he really stepped to the plate. Movie making is all about taking risks. So, you know, if if you came to me and said, hey, Adam, I want to make a fighter pilot movie, it's going to cost 20,000 bucks. Am I going to outlay 20,000 bucks to make a fighter pilot movie? You know, maybe the script's amazing. Maybe you have some great special effects. Maybe you've got access to some F-16s. I don't know. But when you start saying 20,000, okay, now let's make it 200,000. How about 20 million? How about 40 million? How about 60 million? I mean, who's going to risk that kind of money? Sure. And a lot of the studios were saying, you know, it scared them because nobody's made a movie about this war for a long time, probably for a reason. Yeah, That's the way they saw it. But nobody had made a movie like 1917 for a long time. Nobody had made Dunkirk for a long time. Sometimes you have to take these risks. Nobody made Saving Private Ryan with Omaha Beach, you know, since the longest day. And so Mr. Smith decided to take a risk 
the movie, as I've heard, it topped out around $90 million. And that's just the production because yeah. then you have to do the marketing and advertising. So another 20 or $30 million on top of that, maybe 40, 50, I've heard. Yep. All that to say, getting a movie like this made is like winning the lottery. And in this case, I had to win the lottery a couple of times. One was finding Glenn, one was finding Black Label, and then eventually Sony stepped to the plate. And now Glenn is a household name. So looks like that bet paid off. Definitely. But I can't take too much credit because he believed in the story and he came to me. Yeah, that's wonderful. These are the meaningful types of movies that I think the world would be better off to have you know, a little bit more of. You know, you talked a lot about what is real in the development process and you know, getting the feedback that everything's great and, and all that. But Top Gun Maverick had a lot of fanfare around the fact that all the flying scenes were real and come to find after the fact that they did some CGI overlaying on actual flying aircraft to produce the stealthy thing at the beginning and, and whatnot. But how about Devotion? Did they do all the flying for real? Obviously, there's some combat scenes and whatnot that we've seen in the trailers, but did they have real flying aircraft in this? And where did they come from? They really did have real flying aircraft, and they didn't have just one. They had, I would say, oh gosh, upwards of a dozen by the time the production was done. We're talking about F-8F Bearcats flown from the West Coast. A lot of the filming was done in Georgia. Mm -hmm. They did some filming up in Washington State, which represents the Chosen Reservoir. And then a lot of the rest, because there's a lot of coastal scenes to represent the East Coast, they filmed a lot of it in Georgia. So these aircraft were flying. The first time I got a glimpse of them was in a hangar up in Washington State. And they were gathering these planes, a lot of them from California and Texas, Corsairs, Sky Raiders. They said, okay, it's time to paint these things. And so it was really cool because I'm the author of the book, but they're allowing me to say, hey, guys, make sure you make the numbers on the nose big enough because these were close air support aircraft. So you wanted the Marines on the ground, at least the idea was, to be able to see the aircraft they're talking to. Yeah. So we made sure the numbers were big enough. You know, a lot of aircraft flying around these days at air shows, you go to Oshkosh, you're going to see six or seven different color schemes of Corsairs, light blue, dark blue, navy blue, all these different shades. And so I said, okay, we've got to get this kind of rich black blue kind of color that was the period color. You know, we're working on this as they're getting ready to film. But it's really cool because once you see those white K's on the tail, the symbol of the USS Leyte, mm -hmm. their carrier, that's when you know this thing's coming to life and, and something big is happening. So I got to play a part and things like that. I got to work on the script, got to visit the set. It was just really something. They tried to find an aircraft carrier. It's difficult. You know, there's one in Oakland. There's one in Corpus Christi. There's one in San Diego, one in Charleston. And you really can't fly a vintage Corsair off of the deck. The conditions are not right for it. It's probably pretty dangerous. Yeah. The pilot for this movie, the lead pilot, was Steve Hinton. Steve is from uh, Planes of Fame Museum in Chino, California, and he'd done the flying in Pearl Harbor. Okay. And that was some of the best flying I had ever seen. You'd have the Zeros coming by the tower on Fort Island at, you know, 50 feet away. I mean, it was, there was some remarkable stuff in that film. So I actually had steered the Black Label crew to Steve Hinton. I said, if you want to make this movie right, there's one guy for the job when it comes to warbird flying. So I go to Georgia and I, you know, you go out to the set and you get up real early in the morning and you go out and you park your car. It's almost like going to an air show. Mm -hmm. In this case, you go across this field and the fog is there. And I walk up to an aircraft carrier. There's an aircraft carrier on an airfield in rural Georgia. Now, how does that happen? They actually built everything from the deck to the island everything up from the deck. 
you know, you walk up to it and you expect it to be like one of those movie sets where it's just a front fascia and then you pound on it. It's actually made out of metal. Oh, wow. And it actually goes up three stories. Next thing you know, a Corsair is taxing by and then they're launching Corsairs right alongside of you. And it's so surreal because they just rebuilt the USS Leyte. Wow. They did it so that they can do these really cool carrier landings and carrier takeoffs in a safe, controlled environment. So you're going to see everything from real Sky Raiders to real Bearcats to real Corsairs. In particular, there's a Bearcat scene very early in the film, and Glenn Powell and Jonathan Majors are actually flying, not necessarily in Bearcats, but in a similar aircraft with a tail that was painted to look like the Bearcat. And so as they're doing these maneuvers, you're actually seeing the real guys go through these complex aerobatic maneuvers. They're just in a two-seat Sea Fury, actually. Wow. So there's a little movie magic, but then the rest of it, it's the pilots tearing up the sky in these warbirds. The one thing that's a little unfortunate about this is that some of the scenes are so daring and so... When the Corsair is ripping down the river at five feet above the water, you know, the prop is five feet between the waves and the tip. You're going to watch it and you're going to think, oh, CGI. And really, it's real. There's a lot of stuff in this film where the flying is so good, you're going to think it's fake. And the camera angles are so crazy, you're going to think they're fake, but they're real. They used an experimental camera, a very small red camera, it's called. It's almost the size of, oh, I don't know. It can fit in your hand. So it's um, almost like an old... Like a GoPro or something? Yeah, like a GoPro on steroids. Okay. And they were able to put these things in places on the aircraft where cameras have high definition, IMAX quality cameras have never gone before. So even technology that was not there for Top Gun is there for devotion. And I think the flying is actually more beautiful, to be honest. The Corsairs and the Bearcats... They move at a speed that you can actually savor, you can enjoy, you can see the sunlight on the planes. And it's not all that, you know, throw you back in your seat and have the contrails pouring off the aircraft. It's almost like watching a ballet. Wow. So that's one of the really cool things people are going to walk away with. That you're going to get to really see warbirds as you've never seen them before. That's awesome. Well, is there anything that you want the audience to know about the story before we wrap this up? As they head into theaters, is there anything that through all of your research, any favorite moments that you have about the story or anything else that you want to impart upon them? It's a very sacred story to a lot of people. It's a story that was not known outside of military circles for a long time. Tom Hudner was every bit of the character you're going to see in the film. He was a gentleman. He was strong and he was determined and yet he was courteous and yet he was quiet and yet he was heroic. And he was this amazing juxtaposition, truly an officer and a gentleman in so many ways. The thing that I always wanted was just for people to know his name and the name of his element leader, Jesse Brown. Jesse was an incredible pioneer. He had come from absolutely nothing, from the fields of Mississippi, where he was the son of a sharecropper, growing up barefoot, effectively. And he started with nothing. And he said, I want to someday fly Navy airplanes. You know, he could have said, I want to be the first black airline pilot. He could have said, I, you know, I want to follow the Tuskegee Airmen and go into the Army Air Forces at the time. And he said, no, I want to be a Navy carrier pilot. I want to land this thing on a carrier. And so he had this dream that a lot of people thought was crazy at the time. And yet he grew up and he pursued it. And he was this remarkable pioneer. And not just because he was so determined. Jesse Brown was 
he believed in America, even if America didn't believe in him. And I think that's one of the most amazing things. And people found that it was impossible not to like this guy. He had an attitude that said he wanted to be friends with everybody. He wasn't going to impose himself on anyone. He was there to do his job. He was a professional. And Tom Hutner was a professional too. And that's what linked these two men, both largely quiet, introverted professionals who want to be the best and do the best they can to protect their country. And that common ground of patriotism and professionalism just made these guys friends. And then that one day when Jesse Brown found himself in deep trouble behind the lines and at the Chosen Reservoir, and I won't give the spoilers, but he was somebody special that Tom Hudner said, I'll go to the ends of the earth for this guy. And he really did. And that's why Tom Hudner was wearing the Medal of Honor around his neck when I met him that day. And I came to realize that devotion was the perfect title for this story. Devotion appeared in several places. It appeared in one of Jesse's letters home to his wife, Daisy. He ended it with your loving and devoted husband. And that word kind of stuck out to me. Okay. And then when I read Tom's Medal of Honor citation, cited a selfless devotion to a shipmate. And so this word just started appearing in different places and it really epitomized the story. One more thing worth knowing is that for this story, Tom Hudner actually went to the ends of the earth a second time. First time he did it during the Korean War. Second time was when I got to a part in the book. Well, I don't want to spoil it, but I said to Tom, did you ever try to go back to North Korea, the place where you fought? And he said, no. He said, you know, North Korea is difficult to get into. Nobody gets there. I said, well, if we could get you there, would you go? Because there was this unfinished business from the war at the heart of the story. And at age 85, Tom Hudner got on an airplane and he flew with me to North Korea. You know, a lot of people said, this is dangerous. You shouldn't be doing this. But he had a mission. He had unfinished business. He was the epitome of devotion. Lifelong devotion to a friend. Leave no man behind. Go as far as the job requires. And that's what he did. He went to the ends of the earth for his friend, Jesse Brown, twice. That's amazing. I cannot wait for a bit to go see this movie. Where can they buy a copy of the book? What's the best place for them to go look and start their journey? Well, the book is available nationwide. And so it's in Costco, it's in Walmart, it's everywhere right now, which is really exciting because when you write these stories, you just want people to read it. You just want them to feel what you feel. You want them to appreciate these heroes. So for me, a lot of it was about just knowing that the names Brown and Hudner would live on forever. I'm proud to say that is happening. And that's something to be really proud of. But if somebody wants to pick up the book, there's some really special ones. And those are the books autographed by Tom Hudner himself. Back when it came out in 2015, it's kind of a funny story. Tom and I had done a signing at this big Marine gathering in Boston. And turned out a lot of the guys just had a lot to drink that day. And we thought at the end of the event, they're all going to come back and they're going to want to buy these books. Nope, they had a lot to drink that day. And so everybody just went home. So I had this small number of books that Tom had signed and I'm stuck with them. What am I going to do? I shipped them all home and now I have them. And so I said, okay, anybody wants to get one signed by Tom Hudner, first come, first serve, but they're there at valorstudios.com and it's priceless really because he was just that impressive of a man and that great of a hero. So if you want to pick up the book, you can go to Costco and get the paperback or you can get that special one signed by that special man. Well, that's great. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time today to 
one, tell the story throughout the book and obviously now moving that onto the silver screen. But for the listeners out there, valorstudios.com, go get your copy of a signed copy of the book, Devotion, and then go out there and take a look at the movie as well. See what Adam portrayed in the words that he used and the amazing story behind these two incredible gentlemen. Adam, once again, thanks so much. And to listeners, enjoy the show. Great to be with you. Thanks again, Trevor. This is a lot of fun. My thanks again to Knack, John French, and Adam Makos for their time today, helping us to understand the Corsair and the amazing stories it produced during its time in service. Don't forget to check out Adam's website, valorstudios.com, to purchase a copy of his book, Devotion, and get out there to theaters this weekend to see his words come to life. We hope you've enjoyed this special bonus episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast, but before we go, for those that celebrate it, we want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. We are so thankful to have all of you listeners with us each and every week, and we're grateful to be part of your listening experience. Until next time, get high, get fast, and do some good work. We'll see ya. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.